feel like they should give you, uh, I don't know, fair warning probably when I'm about to preach, especially for you guys with the hearing aids, you probably want to turn them up a little bit in case I'm not talking quite as loudly as I need to. Just be careful you don't turn it the other way or you'll be like my granddad at Christmas who just sits there and hmm, he just turns it off as the kids are too loud. Um, I also have to apologize in advance. Kaylin's kind of going through a weird mood where she like screams if anyone other than Megan or I hold her. So if I like run out that way real quick, I'll just ask that Gordon comes up and leaves us an amazing grace or something. I mean, <laughs> that's what interns are for anyways, right? So anyways... Um, glad to be able to share with you this morning. Um, today we're going to be in John chapter 5, and it's a continuation of the conversation that we started last week. Um, and we'll look, and this, this is a conversation, it's really almost a, um, it's not a scolding, but almost that, that Jesus is having a dialogue with the, with the Jewish leaders. And he had just healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And he told him to pick up his mat and to walk. Uh, the problem was that he told him to do this on a Sabbath day. And the Jewish leader saw him and questioned the man, why are you carrying your mat? And he said, well, Jesus told me to pick it up and I haven't walked for 38 years, so I guess I will try it out. Um, and then they start to question his authority. And they question, who is this man that, that can perform the miracles? Uh, they question his claims to being the son of God. Um, and... And we see here today in our, uh, in our passage, which is uh, chapter 5, verses 31, um, that Jesus is, is really responding with like a self-defense, almost as if he's on trial. Which is really interesting because later in John, uh, when we see that Jesus is on trial, and he's before Pontius Pilate, he doesn't say anything. Uh, as I, Isaiah says that he's like a sheep being led to the slaughter, that his mouth is silent. He, he talks a little bit, but here he gives the full authority, the full witness to his deity here in John chapter 5. Uh, so if you are able, please stand with me. John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. Um, I'll read out loud. You can follow along. I'm reading out of the New International Version. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept the praise from man, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, 
how are you going to believe what I say? This is the inspired word of God for us today. Please have a seat. So here Jesus presents five testimonies uh, that he is, in fact, not just the Son of God even, but God. Um, and what are the testimonies? Well, the first one is he, he uh, calls up John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was um, a prophet, a messenger of God, who was sent to the people to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, he, went and he was out in the wilderness, out in the River Jordan, and he baptized people that came out to them. And, and, and in fact, his whole message was repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And the people were enthralled by him. They went out to see him. Even the Pharisees had gone out to, to witness um, the ministry of John the Baptist. And the people were so convinced that he was a prophet. Even the Pharisees could not say that he wasn't a prophet. They feared, um, they feared the people. They also feared the, feared the Romans. Uh, but they were convinced also that he was a prophet. And so we have the words of John the Baptist. And when he saw Jesus, he said, I'm not even worthy to untie this man's sandals. And he pointed the way to Christ. This is the first testimony. The next testimony that Jesus gives is that, to his divinity is that his works were the works that the Father had given him to finish. You know, that the works of Christ were these miracles. You know, they were signs, displays of Jesus' nature. His power over creation, his power over blindness, his power over disease, his power over death, his power over hunger, his power over thirst. These were the works of Christ. He healed the blind, the lame. He turned water into wine. He walked on water. He calmed storms. He fed thousands with just a handful of fish and bread. He raised the dead to life, and in his greatest miracle, he himself conquered death and rose again after spending three days in the grave. If the miracles of Jesus are true, and these men don't even deny that they are, then Jesus is, kind of like the Dos Equis man, the most interesting man in the world. Without a doubt. That's who he is. The next testimony to Jesus' authority was the audible voice of the Father. After Jesus had been baptized by John, the voice God the Father called out, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Pharisees were there. They heard about this. They heard it. They heard the audible voice of the Father say, This is my Son. And the next one is Scripture. And all of Scripture is the signposts to Christ. All the Old Testament, the New Testament, everything points to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. It foretold his birth, life, and death. It spoke of the town where he would be born. It spoke of the circumstances surrounding his miraculous birth. It spoke of his miracles. It spoke of his ministry to the poor. It spoke of his perfect life and his sinless death. It also foretold the resurrection. It foretold that Jesus' rightful place was on high with the Father. This was all prophecy. Scripture pointed to Christ. All of the Old Testament, everything in it, points to Christ as the Son of God. And the New Testament all points back to Christ also as the Son of God. All of Scripture points to Christ. This is another testimony. Finally, Jesus calls upon Moses. He says, the words of Moses testify that I am the Son of God. And we look at his life. Jesus was actually the new and better Moses. You know, Moses had been called to liberate his people, God's people, from the bondage of the slavery of Egypt. 
Christ was called to liberate his people from the bondage of slavery to sin. You know, Moses was called to lead, to show the people the way to the promised land. And Christ came to be the way to God. You know, Moses came to write and deliver the word of God, and Jesus said, I am the word. All of these testimonies they have, and the, Jew, the Jewish leaders, they just missed it. You know, they missed it. They had John the Baptist proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. They had God the Father himself proclaim that Jesus was, was the Messiah. They had the miraculous works as a sign of his divinity. They had all of Scripture foretelling that Christ was the Messiah. And they had the words of Moses saying that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, in a courtroom, if you have five independent witnesses that are all corroborating the same story, and they're all saying, this is the guy, well, then this is the guy. And that's what they had. They had five independent witnesses that were all pointing to Christ as the Messiah. The evidence was irrefutable, and they had no argument to the contrary. But instead of celebrating God's Messiah, they plotted to kill him. And instead of creating for him a crown, they made him a crown of thorns. Instead of becoming his followers, they would wind up becoming his murderers. You know, if anyone should have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, it was these guys here. Of anyone that knew the scripture, these people knew it more. They studied scriptures like some of us study college football recruiting. Every single day they're in the word. They're in, they're in it. Anything that had a numerical value associated with it, any commandment, they kept it perfectly. They, command, they kept the commands of scripture regarding the offering of sacrifices and tithing, giving to the poor. They followed all the rules. They followed them down to a T. And compared to everyone else around them, no one else had even come close to the holiness of the Pharisees, of the Jewish leaders. You know, their lives were so outwardly righteous that they were even thinking this. Of course, the Messiah is going to look like us. Who else is as perfect? Who else is as holy? Who else is as good as us? Who else knows God's law as much? But then Jesus came and he didn't look like them. And Jesus went to the poor, and he went to the sick. He associated with himself with lepers and sinners and fishermen and tax collectors, the scum of society. Jesus went to them, and these were all the people that the Jewish leaders avoided. So, of course, this couldn't be the Messiah. He didn't look like them. You know, but some, kind of thinking about it, don't we sort of make some of the same mistakes as them? You know, don't we tend to think of our own good works and compare ourselves to others and think, you know, I'm pretty good compared to that guy? I could point to some of you in here. I'm not going to do it. But, you know, I'm joking. You're probably pointing to me and comparing yourself to me. That's probably a, a better comparison. You know, don't we sometimes get into the dangerous line of thinking that Jesus looks more like us than we should look like Jesus? And don't we accept, like them, accept praise from one another and yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from God? You know, no amount of works or good intentions or religious practice will ever get us close to Jesus. You know, really all that that does is to earn the praise of each other. You know, do you know what God thinks of our independent acts of righteousness? You know, the words of Isaiah, he calls them, but filthy rags. And yet we walk around with these works of righteousness, these filthy rags, and we wear them and we think that we're all that, and really all that we should do with those things is take them off and burn them. You know, the first... The first car I had out of college, 
um, I was really excited about it. And I, maybe you can think of your first car. You want to take care of it. You want to keep it nice. You know, I, I got some armor all. I'm going over the inside of it. I'm keeping it real, real nice and, um, you know, washing it, waxing it, doing everything I can. Um, and then I decide because, hey, I want to really get to know my car. I'm going to change the oil. It only takes the Jiffy Lube, the Quickie Lube guys like five minutes to do this, right? So how hard could it be? So I go out and I get the oil and I get the, um, the oil filter and I get the drain thing that you put underneath to catch all the dirty oil as it comes out. Um, and I tried to drive my car up the little ramps that my dad had, but that was for his Jeep, so it was too small. So I'd got, I got the jack and I'm cranking it up and um, I don't think I cranked it in the right place. The whole time the car is shaking even as I'm underneath it, you know, just waiting for it to fall off the jack. Anyway, I get underneath with my little oil catcher pan um, and you have to find the plug on the oil pan. And, and, you, and you pull the plug. Because, I mean, that's what, that's what you have to do. And so you have to line up your thing right, right at the right spot so that when you pull the plug, all the dirty oil falls out in there. I don't remember if I had just, was just too excited and couldn't wait till my oil cooled down or what it was, but I pull the plug and all of a sudden I'm taking an oil shower. It's all over my hair, all over my face. It's on my clothes. It's, like, so nasty. And it, it just, like flood of oil coming out of the pan. And so I'd move my thing, I'd start catching the oil, I'd go inside, i change my shirt, i come back out, all the oil's out, I'm thinking, okay, this is no big deal. Well then, you have to change the oil filter. Did you know that an oil filter contains oil? <laughs> you would think that that would be obvious, but I did not. And so I'm covered in oil, my hands are all greasy and slippery, and I go to try to take off the oil filter, which is like, like a Coke can size, and it just twists off. It, but when your hands are all greasy and oily, you cannot twist this thing at all. I don't know if any of you have tried this before. And so I'm twisting it. Again, the car's still shaking. I'm just waiting for it. I'm sure my brother was watching me. He's just waiting for me to like, get crushed to death um, underneath my car. And so I'm grabbing it, and it's still not twisting. I can't get it off. Finally, I have the brilliant idea of I'm going to get a screwdriver and a hammer. And I'm going to puncture my oil filter so I can get enough leverage to sort of twist it after I stick this through that. So I get it. I do that, first stroke, bam, oil shower number two. Just comes flooding all out over me. Okay, there's oil all over the driveway, oil all over shirt number two, um, which now I have like a nice little collection of oiled shirts. Um, you know, I've got a, an oil filter that is just full of holes and I still can't even get it off. And I'm not even sure how it came off to this day. It might still be under my car right now. But the point of that is that our righteousness is like dirty rags. It's like those oil covered shirts. You know, if I would have had one, I would have worn it today, just so you can see what this righteousness that we walked around in looks like. The, our righteous acts compared to God's perfect law is like dirty rags. And, and we wear those acts, those righteous acts around like a prize. Like, like we're so proud of these filthy rags that we're wearing. You know, and that's the good news of the gospel, right? Not really. That's just the reality of life. I mean, is that we all go around with these dirty rags and they're covered up. We're covered in our filthy rags, and yet we boast about them. But, but the truth of the gospel is that our work can't earn eternal life. It's exactly the opposite. When we come face to face with Jesus like the Pharisees did, like these Jews did, then we are convicted of the fact that our righteous acts are filthy rags. You know, we understand that we can never earn the gift of eternal life. And it's in that moment of desperation, that realization that we can't do it, that Christ steps in. You know, the good news of the gospel isn't that we're good enough to earn our way to God, 
But the good news is that we don't have to be. Because we can't. God is not waiting for you to clean up your life to come to him. But really, he's waiting for you to accept the fact that you can't. No one is in heaven because they follow the Ten Commandments. But there's a lot of people who aren't there because they tried to. You know, God is waiting for us to take off our filthy rags so that we can put on his clean clothes of righteousness. He's waiting for us to recognize that we're lost and hopeless without him and to confess to him that we've been waiting to give our lives to a Messiah that looks like us instead of the Messiah that came to us. You know, he's offering testimony after testimony and witness after witness to the authority of his power so that we might be saved. You, know, you can appeal to nature, you can appeal to science, you can appeal to reason, appeal to scripture, appeal to man. The simple and honest truth, as Paul writes in Romans 8, is that all of creation is waiting for the glory of God to be revealed. Jesus told the Pharisees in Luke 19 that if his disciples didn't proclaim them that he was the Messiah, that the rocks would cry out that he was. So even if man is silent to the authority of Jesus Christ, day after day, nature would proclaim that Jesus is God. And so we have all this evidence. We have these five testimonies, these five independent witnesses, and still the religious leaders don't believe. You know, what does this tell us? I think it tells us that our excuses of not coming to Jesus are exactly that. They're excuses. The truth is that all of the evidence points to Christ. When our heart hears the truth, it knows the truth. We recognize our creator. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that God has set eternity in the heart of man. But man does not understand him from end to end. It is undeniable, and yet we deny it. And, and why is that? I think it's a lot of times because we're like these Jews, and we seek the approval of man. You know, Jesus asked this pointy question, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? And this isn't really a question as much as it's a statement. You can't believe because you accept the praise of man instead of the praise of the only God. So why does the pursuit of the praise of man keep us from God? There's a couple of things I have. Um, the praise of others, it puffs us up into thinking that we're something that we're not. You know, because people are not omniscient, because we can't see everything, we look at each other and think that we're pretty much okay. You know, we can only see our outward actions. Uh, we, I can only see your actions. I can't see your motives. I can't see your heart. I can't see your thoughts. You know, the religious leaders nearly carried out the law perfectly so that others would think of them as godly. And they measured themselves against this Ten Commandments, and they actually stacked up pretty nicely. But Jesus came and said that the real law is not actually the commandments, and it's not all these other traditions that they kept, but the real law was found in Deuteronomy 6.5, which says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And compared to those standards, you guys don't look so great. You know, they were setting the bar like way down here and clapping as each of them stepped over as if they had done something amazing. But really the bar that Christ sets for us is so high that we can never attain it on our own. It's kind of the same, you know, the bar of man is set pretty low. It doesn't really take us a lot to convince that, that you or I are a good person, right? Like, oh, she smiles at me a lot. She's a nice person. Um, he gave me a great Christmas, Christmas present this year. That's some good people right there, you know? They attend church every week, and they sing in the choir. They're a great person. This is easier when the choir's back there and not up here. Um, 
And if, if you're convinced, and, and, oh, he's a pastor. He works for a church. He's, a, he's, a, he's in the ministry. He's my Bible study teacher. He's my Sunday school teacher. He must be a good person. It doesn't take us much to convince each other that we're good. And then if you, if you start treating me like I'm a good person, I'm going to start believing I'm a good person. And you're thinking, what's wrong with me treating you like you're a good person? I mean, I don't want you to come and, like, throw fish at me every time you see me or something like that or, you know, go egg my car outside. But the problem is that when we think that we are good people, when people treat us like we're good, then we believe that we're good. And good people don't need God. They don't. You know, does a good person need a savior? Does a good person believe that their righteous works are just filthy rags? Is a good person desperate for the forgiveness of sin that only Christ can provide? You know, here's a question for you. Do you go to the doctor when you feel great or when you feel sick? You go when you feel sick. Who needs a doctor? Both people. What happens when we see that a lot of times the, the most the best way to catch something, to catch a disease, to catch an illness, is to catch it early before you even feel like you're sick. The praise of man can delude us into thinking that we're good. It can delude us into feeling like we're great. But the reality is that we're far from it. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, this is Samuel. He's talking. He's looking for the next king. Um, he's looking at all of David's brothers. You remember they're big and they're strong. They look awesome. Um, and one after one after one, he says, no, that's not it. No, that's not him. No, that's not him. He says that the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, others can see our works and they give us praise. But God sees our hearts and he knows the truth. You know, that we're not all that, that we're filled with sin, that, that we're filled with pride, that we're filled with anger, that we're filled with lust, that we're filled with jealousy, that we're filled with deceit and self-righteousness and greed and laziness and cowardice and fear and anxiety and shame and guilt and pain, just to name a few. That's what God sees when he looks at us. We cannot trick him into thinking that we're something that we're not. That outwardly we're okay because inwardly we're decaying and dying. And dying people, they need a savior. Dying people need a healer. They need someone to remove their sickness, to restore their souls. They need to be stripped down and laid bare. They need forgiveness and repentance, and they need Jesus. In pursuing the praise of man, we're just like adding more layers to a rotting core. You, know, you can take a rotten apple and cover it in caramel, but inside it's still a rotten apple. You can, take, you can take a dying man and clothe him in the nicest clothes, but inside he's still a dying man. We pre when we receive the praise from others, we begin to believe that we deserve it, but the only way to come to the cross is with the realization that we are truly undeserving. We can't have this thought that we're just trading in a good life for a better life that so many of us believe. Yeah, my life's pretty good. I'll trade it in for the life of Christianity. That's not what we're called to. What we're called to do is trade in a dying life for an eternal life. And only Jesus can take us from death to life. And next, because, sinful, because man is sinful and darkness hates the light, the praise of man does not lead us to God. Sinful man does not recognize God and does not know God, and man does not praise true godliness. Man persecutes godliness. When you come to faith in Christ, you are not received by the world, but you're rejected by the world. John 15, 18 and 19, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. 
If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Want to know why the world hates Christians? It's because we're followers of Jesus, and darkness hates the light. The world loves its own, but it hates the followers of Christ. It praises its own, but it persecutes Christians. You know, it's true that man will actually praise good deeds. You can, you can feed the hungry. Um, you can serve the homeless. You can clean up after a tornado. And man will see these things, and man will praise us for it. But if you truly sacrifice your time and your resources to bring glory to God, you'll be mocked and ridiculed. If the world likes people who are kind and generous, who just set good examples and give us some good stories from the news every once in a while. But when people actually begin sacrificing their lives for Christ... It makes us really uncomfortable. You know, because the world's acts of kindness, they pale in comparison to the true light of Christ. That's why it's convicting to us to hear of someone who's given it all to follow Jesus. And that's why when we hear of someone that does that, someone else has to get up and say, yeah, that's good for you, but not for me. It's because it's convicting. Because the light of Christ comes and convicts us of our darkness. We don't like those stories. And we might even be respected to our face, but we're ridiculed behind our back for giving what we have to follow Jesus. The true obedience to Christ will bring persecution and not praise, but half-hearted devotion for God, that will actually bring you praise. The world does not know true compassion, because true compassion and true mercy acts regardless of the glory. You know, the world only does the right thing when it's hip or cool or when other people are around, but when the lights go off and everyone goes home, and nobody's watching, what are we doing? And that brings the glory to God. That's what he cares about. You know, most, one of the most convicting stories in the Bible is when Jesus singles out the poor widow who gives her last two pennies in the offering and, and takes it and gives it to God. And the Pharisees' generous gifts paled in comparison to this woman giving everything to Christ. True sacrificial to God makes my good deeds look like the crap that they are. And that's the truth. And the praise of man will never lead me to the praise of God. The praise of man will only lead me to clothing myself in filthy rags. The praise of man, though, it's intoxicating. It's addictive. It's powerful. It's seductive. It puffs us up and then lets us float away. It aims to make powerful men and women of God powerless. It prevents unbelievers from seeing the truth. It keeps us from realizing that we need God. It allows us to rely on ourselves and prevents us from being humbled enough to receive, to recognize our helplessness without Christ. It allows dying men to think that they have life. But the only way to life is through the Son of God, Christ. So just this morning, I implore you to be honest with yourself and be honest with God. You know, he knows your heart. He knows whose praise you seek. He knows your secret sin. He knows your secret pain. He knows that some of us can't come to him because we don't even think we need a God. We don't think we need a Savior. But Jesus knows all that, and he died for all that. He died that we could go from death to life. He died so that we could know the praise that comes from the only God. He died so that in our brokenness and our emptiness, we can know the healing power of the sinless Savior. And through Christ, we can know the praise of God. The praise of God comes to us not because we kept the law, but because Jesus did. We're helpless and unable to offer anything more than our filthy rags, but Jesus is capable and able to exchange those filthy rags for his perfect righteousness. 
Our righteousness, even as we follow him, comes from him. It's Christ in us. It's not our power. It's not my will. It's not my strength. But it's Christ in me. Lest no man should boast. But, but the Jews missed it. Pastors missed this. Church people missed this. Because again, we seek the praise of God. And we set the bar low. The only bar is the perfect bar of God. Jesus calls us to follow him, to know and to live the power of God in our lives. He offers to trade in our rags, to trade in our shame and our sin, to trade our disease and our darkness for the only abundant and satisfying life. And that is only found in Christ. You know, this offer is always on the table. Are you pursuing the praise of man? Are you, identif- are you trusting in your filthy rags? Are you outwardly fine but inwardly dying? Then come and trade in your life. Because only Jesus can take you from death to life. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and, and so many of us are convicted of the filthy rags that we wear. Father, the righteousness that we, that we walk around in, that, Lord, that is not only not righteousness, but, Lord, it's, it's filthiness and dirtiness. God, and we are trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in you. Lord, we give excuse after excuse as to why we won't follow you. Father, I pray this morning that you would convict our hearts, open our eyes to see the truth. God, that you would set our hearts on fire for you and on your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Our hymn is 231, Take the Name of Jesus With You. Let's stand as we sing 231. Mm -hmm. 